Hello, I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. Since the horrific Hamas terrorist massacres in southern Israel in early October, American observers have been horrified by something that really should not be happening. Mass marches of left-wing students expressing solidarity with the Palestinian cause, if not the Hamas regime that perpetrated the attacks itself. But a close analysis of the ideological currents in academia should have warned us that something like what we have seen on campus would in fact come to pass. Joining me to discuss these developments are my colleagues, Sarah Lee and J.P. Green of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Jay, welcome back. We had you on in early uh, early 2022 to discuss the Education Trust, as I recall. Yes, thanks for having me back on. So you would think after the, if I may borrow uh, some phrasing from former President Franklin Roosevelt, sudden, deliberate, unprovoked, and dastardly attacks by Hamas terrorists against uh, Israeli civilians on October 7th, uh, that there would at least be general outrage against the the attacks themselves. But on college campuses, we've seen something else. What have we seen and why? Sure. So you've seen a, a fair um, amount of expression of sympathy for Hamas. Um, and while rarely explicit endorsement of the tactics that were used, they in general were either minimized or rationalized uh, as an inevitable and necessary part of decolonization, uh, as as those who who advocate for that would call it. Um, and and you're right. This um, is while shocking, I think, to most people who've just paid attention. For those who, of us who've been looking at this for some time, it's not surprising. Um, can you go into a bit of the ideological background of decolonization? Because that's, as I understand it, sort of the root of this. Sure. So um, uh, really all of this is kind of watered down Marxism. Um, so um, the watered down Marxism that has made its way through uh, campus um, is a dichotomy of, of grouping everyone into oppressor or oppressed categories. Um, uh, and the oppressors deserve to have their privilege taken away, uh, and the oppressed deserve restitution for the collective and historic wrongs that they've experienced. And everyone can be placed in these oppressor or oppressed categories based on their group identity, um, uh, not based on individual actions. And so this is kind of a rewarmed Marxism where instead of capitalist and worker as the dichotomy. It's oppressor and oppressed. And instead of it being based on economic class, it's based on on group ethnic and sexual identity. And now, so and so in yeah. the in the eyes of these radical leftists who we've seen demonstrating, because the Palestinians are supposed to be oppressed and Israel's supposed to be the oppressor, does that that gives the Palestinians right, there are the different to rules. kind of do whatever they want? Sure, there are different rules for oppressor and oppressed. Uh, the, um, rather than kind of the traditional American aspiration that everyone would be treated equally under the law as an individual, here people are treated systematically unequally by group identity in order to 
to correct for group in, um, uh, oppression and wrongs that have been committed. And, um, and so the decolonization, the call for decolonization, is really just the rewarmed version of Lenin's theory of imperialism, which was that the global north uh, had exploited the global south, uh, just as the capitalists and 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 for, and for the record, the global yeah. north is us, the United yes, States. That's right. Europe. That's the U.S. Right. <laughs> Decolonize doesn't apply to uh, just to to others. It applies to 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 the U.S. Uh, that the global north, uh, so industrialized Western societies, had oppressed the global south, um, and and that this is a variant of the oppressor oppressed dichotomy. So so Israel is cast as the colonizer. Uh, and the Palestinians as the colonized. Um, now, leaving aside the kind of historical ignorance that has to be engaged in in order to come to this belief, I mean, to, to think of uh, Jews uh, in the land of Israel being colonizers is strange. I mean, it's, it's, it's not uh, uh, common for colonizers to dig in the ground and find coins written in their own language that are 2000 years old. That's, that's not, and, a, and, as, that's and, not and, a, and in a slightly more contemporary context, it's my understanding that Israel withdrew all of its uh, settlements in the Gaza Strip. From the Gaza Strip in particular, certainly um, Israel could not be cast as, as colonizer or occupier, um, but even in the land of Israel more generally, because I think that's the issue in dispute here. So when, when campus radicals march around and talk about from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, what they're referring is to is uh, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, by which they mean all of Israel and not in particular Gaza Strip. Uh, they want Palestine to be all of that, and they want the Jews to be gone from that or at least subjugated by that. Sarah, uh, do, you, uh, do you have any questions for Jay? Uh, yeah. So um, I know that we are, you know, what prompted us to want to have you on was an op-ed that you wrote with your colleague, Mike Gonzalez, who we've also had on this show before. An excellent, um, an excellent column. The one I'm looking at, I think it went into a couple of different places, but it's uh, the headline is, uh, let me pull it up and make sure I'm saying it correctly. No one should be surprised by the depraved radicalism on college campuses, which Mike, you know, has spoken to. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here just a little bit and ask you if you think that most of these young students at some of these Ivy League schools, I know Columbia, Penn, Harvard, there's, there have been protests all over the place uh, around the country. Do you think that they're fully aware of what they're actually protesting? As you mentioned, there's a historical ignorance there for sure. But do you, I feel like it's a sort of a first world problem that we have where these kids don't know war. They don't know what it is they're actually, uh, in, you know, proposing we should do. They don't understand it fully. So do you think that there's some, and that leads me to believe that there might be a way to um, talk to them about it and get them to understand. Do you think that that's being naive or do we have a chance there? So I think one context that might be useful to add here is I don't believe these radical beliefs are held by the majority of students. Most students are uninterested in this matter and are preoccupied with other uh, more reasonable things. Um, but this is a very well-organized, uh, vocal, and menacing group. And it's the menacing part that's important. Uh, they're intimidating. They're frightening other students. They're fi frightening staff, administrators, faculty. And when people are frightened, they're inclined to kind of give in or avoid 
in the hopes that it goes away. And I think we saw this a little bit with the George Floyd pro- protest too. Um, you know, when people go out in the streets and they riot, um, it's menacing. And so people are inclined to kind of give in to hope that the menace goes away before they they fight back. And so the vast majority of people on campus, I think, are not particularly sympathetic to the radicals marching around. But the radicals have power because they're frightening, because they're threatening violence either explicitly or implicitly. Now, is their threat of violence a function of ignorance um, or evil? And uh, I say, why not both? Um, They're both ignorant and evil. Um, But the evil part is important because it means that this cannot simply be cured with information. Um, I mean, so, we, yes, we've, I mean, I mean we've, lit- we've literally mm-hmm. seen that with not necessarily students, but all but some students and all over the place, you know, as people have been posting the images of some of the victims uh, of the attacks were taken taken hostage. Uh, and then they've been, you know, you see these people going around tearing them down. You know, these aren't people who want to be informed. Right. Well, and and I think as a general rule, we should assume that political activity is driven by interests, not by information. So so people don't do the things they do in politics because they don't know something. Uh, They do those things because it benefits them to do those things. So that then invites the question, well, how does this benefit these students? What What are they getting out of this? And I think what they're getting is a a redistribution, uh, as they see it, of of positions of power and influence. They want those things for themselves. So in particular on campus, I think what we've seen is um, a fairly large number of Jews in positions in academia. And then there there are other groups that come along and they see Jews in those positions and they say, to themselves, I want those things. I want those positions. Uh, why are they in those positions? What wrong must they have committed to be disproportionately represented in those positions? Right, since all all evidence of disproportionality is evidence of wrongdoing, and that's as much the case for being overrepresented as underrepresented. If you're underrepresented, that would be evidence of your oppression and overrepresented would be evidence of oppressing. So since Jews are overrepresented in these institutions, they must have oppressed and they must have those spots taken away and given to others. And this is not merely as a matter of abstract justice, but as a concrete matter of interest. That is people see things and they want them for themselves. So this is the rough equivalent of the uh, Polish uh, person in the countryside in you know 1939 who points out where the Jews are, uh, not because that person has something in particular against Jews, but because they want their house, something like that, right? This is this is like point to where the Jews are to take their house, um, but this is the academic version of it. So and you know the conservatives were purged from academia largely by the 90s. Um, but now the purge that's underway is of liberals, old school liberals. And, and these old school liberals, a lot of them are Jewish. Um, so Lawrence Summers, what do they do? They have to purge him out, right? That seems, that that would sort of indicate that maybe there's a chance here that this won't work for them because, 
I would imagine, you know, we're seeing a lot of those huge donors pulling, you know, their endowment uh, donations and things like that. Um, have they, you know, the left I, I will, I goes will, I will too broaden, far. I will broaden, I will broaden the question just in general. You know, we've, we have asked Lenin's question, who, whom, let us ask Lenin's question, what is to be done? <laughs> right. Um, well, um, so far they've been succeeding. Uh, they've been purging the, the liberals pretty well um, and taking their spots. Um, and if you look at, at you know, who, who has been pushed out in the leadership of Ivy League institutions or, or near Ivies, uh, you know, Mort Shapiro at Northwestern or Lawrence Summers at, at Harvard, it, these are kind of old school liberal Jews. Um, they're not on the right, but they're not progressives and they don't believe in this, you know, rewarmed Marxism. Uh, and they're Jews, so so they must have done something wrong to be disproportionately in these spots. So other people are purging them and taking their spots. Um, and uh, so far, that's been succeeding despite uh, a good number of the donors themselves being Jewish and liberal, right? Um, and some of that is because Jews have, have disproportionately given to these institutions in the hopes of maintaining um, protection and earning respectability in a broader society. So, you know, Jews want to have their names on buildings on campus or on major arts institutions so as to demonstrate that, you know, Jews are part of society, respectable society. I mean, we saw saw this, we saw this at George Washington in DC where the, some, uh, I'll be charitable and call them pro-Palestinian demonstrators were posting some of their slogans on a library above the name of the donors who had were Jewish alumni of George Washington. Right. Um, now I do think that we have the possibility of um, the zoom moment for higher education. Uh, so there was a, a zoom moment in K-12 where a bunch of middle-class and upper-middle-class moms suddenly discovered that the institutions to whom they had, to which they had entrusted their children had betrayed their trust. When they discovered that, that the schools were unwilling, actively unwilling to take their kids on in person, were providing them with incredibly subpar education online, that the quality of the education and the quality of the people providing it were generally low and that the content was way more radical than they had ever realized. This caused a rebellion among middle-class and upper-middle-class moms. They had simply trusted and now they were in rebellion. And we've seen a wave of reforms in the K-12 space as a result. It is possible that this is the beginning of what we're seeing in higher ed. That is that the equivalent upper middle class, upper middle class moms sent their kids off to respectable universities with the thought that they'd be fine. Um, And seeing then the campuses have marchers running around chanting genocidal slogans um, or if your your side is chanting about Jewish people, there is only one solution. Consider that you may be the bad guys. Right. Well, and it's, so th- this is scary to upper middle class moms who are not Jewish because they don't want their kids getting caught up in this cult, right? It's a cult of kids chanting these slogans and marching around and because they want their kids to kind of come out normal and get a job and get married and 
you know, live a decent life. And um, sort of raises so the question too, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you, but yeah. if they're learning radicalism, and, and I take your point that not every student is engaged in this, but if this, you know, group of students, wherever they may be, are just learning radical, radicalism, what aren't they learning in their very expensive college education? Oh, well, yeah, we, we can fill volumes <laughs> with what they're not learning. Um, uh, yeah, I, all of this has been made possible by the hollowing out of the quality of, of education in general, right? So it has created a vacuum, but it's also been been made possible by the hollowing out of the kind of value system that young people have going into college. They, they're coming in highly susceptible to recruitment. Um, and because we've, we've weakened all of the institutions that might've immunized them uh, to this kind of recruitment uh, uh, before they arrived. Um, so that would include religious institutions and um, community organizations. Families themselves have become weaker. All you, have of element, you have elements of K-12 that have been preparing them with the right. se- laying the seeds of this ideology for years. That's now. right. This does start early. This is a, this is a comprehensive problem that didn't, doesn't suddenly arrive when on campus. Um, I mean, I mean because, because to me, every issue ha- has a labor angle. I mean, we saw the Oakland Teachers Union come out and, you know, issue statements in favor of the Palestinians and demanding ceasefire now. Uh, so even, you know, if you come right. out of that, uh, well, and that there, district, there have been affiliates of the American Federation for Teachers that organize graduate student unions that have also been issuing statements. And these statements are not pro-Palestinian, uh, to be clear. Um, one can be sympathetic to the situation that Palestinians are in without supporting Hamas uh, or supporting uh, the mass slaughter, rape, uh, and kidnapping of... Or, de- or, or denying Israel's right to defend itself against future right. attacks. Well, without being sympathetic to the situation of Jews in, in that area as well, right? One one can kind of have a broad uh, set of, of, of sympathies and, and reasonable people could even disagree about where their sympathies would be strongest. Um, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something that's really quite unbalanced. And they And so, for example, the University of Kansas... Graduate Student Union, which is a local affiliate of the American Federation for Teachers, issued a statement um, sympathetic uh, not only to Hamas, but referencing Paulo Ferrer's Pedagogy of the Oppressed uh, in a, with a quote about how the oppressed could never be the perpetrators of violence because they themselves are the product of violence. So this is the kind of rationalization that has seeped into um, uh, our educated class that has allowed them to intellectualize and rationalize what in the past we would have all recognized as, as barbarism. Right. It, you have to be really mm-hmm. smart to be this dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was talking to somebody on Twitter about this. It's, you cannot rationalize some of the things that we know have happened, what happened in Israel. You cannot rationalize that barbarism. Not if you are, uh, you know, of a society that purports to be civilized. And so it's very interesting to me that these kids, not only are they, you know, educated to be radicals, they're also very, they don't believe they don't believe the news reports. They they think they're they're sharp to propaganda, but they're buying the truth as propaganda. It's such a strange. You I use mean, the word I mean, imbalanced. See, it's so strange. You see some you see some of these people who have been caught on the street, tearing down the 
the the pictures of the hostages, you know, and and they'll say like, oh, it's AI. Oh, it never happened. Oh, this is you know, this is made up. When obviously it isn't. You know, I mean, the the things yeah. the things that we do, the things that they're doing to try to you know lay aside either the pang of conscience or cognitive dissonance that maybe you're not the good guys here. Right. Um, again, um, the smarter and more capable you are at abstract manipulation of ideas, the better you are at justifying horrific things, um, which means that kind of the abstract intellectual life is a dangerous business that has to be treated cautiously. Right. It has to be done carefully uh, by responsible grownups um, or it can lead to some really bad things. Um now, all that being said, I, I am hopeful. I mean, this has all been very gloomy to, to this point in our conversation, but I, I do think there are reasons to think that it will come under control. Um, and the first thing you were asking about um, uh, earlier is, is um, donors. I do think donors are waking up and beginning to close their wallets. And then I mentioned you know, middle-class, upper-middle-class parents who send their kids off to these very expensive institutions, um, they're waking up and they're beginning to wonder, is this such a good idea? Um, might there be cheaper local options that are really higher quality in preparation for the adult life they really wish for their children? Um, so state universities begin to look more attractive. And while these problems do exist in state universities, they're, they're a little less severe there. Um, I think that's a reason for, for hope. I think another reason for hope is that there is, there is reality out there. There is a, re, there is a real world, and, and it imposes a real world constraint on crazy ideas. So, now, crazy ideas can do a lot of damage, and they can survive for a long time in the abstract. But when they bump up against reality, they eventually dissolve. And I think that's going to happen here, too. So, um, is, there any, is there anything that you know, maybe state or local level policymakers can do, uh, that they have, that they would have the authority to do? Yeah. Well, so I think the first and most important thing is we have to stop giving universities money. I mean, I I know that sounds horrible uh, to say. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) You think universities are poor and are doing the most important thing possible by educating the youth. But in truth, these are institutions that are awash in cash. They're so fricking rich that people have no idea how much money there is. Even in regular old state universities, they are just sloshing around in cash. It's just that they're so shockingly wasteful and inefficient that, that it feels like money is tight there. But, um, but that is not evidence that they are desperately in need of cash. And so, so the reality test that they need imposed on them, the thing that will bring these abstractions into check is when the money gets tight. And so if donors close their wallets and state legislatures um, reduce appropriations and or condition appropriations on um, ensuring that institutions are serving public purposes um, and not um, not other purposes, I, I think that you'll be amazed at how quickly all these universities come around. Um, so they're essentially like spoiled children. They're trust fund children mm-hmm. who um, are, are very poorly behaved until, you know, they get disinherited and then, then they suddenly wise up. I uh, love that. I love that idea. <laughs> Disinherit the, the, the university system. <laughs> well, and, we, and, and, and the truth is we, we can do this. I mean, first, state universities 
receive direct state appropriation in most cases. Um, but in addition, uh, even uh, the private universities, select private universities we're talking about, receive a gigantic public subsidy. So first, there are subsidized loans um, that students receive. We should, you know, make students go to banks and get loans from banks, right? Like, and stop subsidizing their loans. Um, certainly, stop forgiving their loans. That that's a really horrible idea to breathe. Especially, air. especially stop forgiving their, forgiving their loans without congressional authorization and legal process. <laughs> yes, that would also be bad. Um, but um, but they also receive uh, huge grants for research, uh, much of which is nonsense. Um, but even the ones that aren't nonsense have gigantic indirect or overhead costs associated with them that provide slush money to administrators to do bad things. We have found that DEI bureaucracies are, are strongly related to the size of indirect revenues or overhead revenues that universities get on grants. Because one of the things they do with that money is they hire DEI officers who are essentially you know, a political commissariat to articulate and enforce an ideological orthodoxy on campus. So we should, we need to cut the overhead rates on grants. We need to reduce the overall amount of grants from the government uh, to, uh, to universities for research. Um, and we also need to eliminate these Title VI centers for um, the Middle East Studies uh, centers. Those are all federally sponsored. Um, and they're the craziest of the craziest on campus. Um, that's all with federal money. Let's cut that off. We don't need it. If we must have people who are language specialists or culture specialists, let's do it in the military academies only um, and not at Columbia. Mm-hmm. What do you make of like uh, uh, Tim Scott and I think Marsha Blackburn signed on this legislation that they're proposing to just basically do what you're saying is to defund universities that engage in overt anti-Semitic language, rhetoric? I, look, I'd rather have it be across the board. Mm-hmm. They, if the money got tight across the board, they'd all begin to behave more responsibly. If you condition it on metrics, the, I assure you the worst behaviors are also the most sophisticated at gaming metrics. Um, and they'll avoid the... So, so you know, it's, keep it's it, one of the problems Keep it simple. Keep it simple, right? So let's just scale back subsidy like crazy. That sounds um, like equity. <laughs> well, it, cer- it certainly would would reduce the the redistribution from working class people to the elites who who attend universities. Sure. So before we let you go, is there anything else that uh, you or your colleagues are working on that you'd like to promote? Um, well, we did we did do a study. Uh, recently, Jason Bedrick and I, where we looked at um, the career paths of former campus radicals. So all these people who are marching around campus now, chanting, you know, from the river to the sea, or intifada now, or, or, or um, you know, there is only one solution, solution intifada. All, all these horrific intifada genocidal things that they're that they're chanting. You know, we might hope or imagine that they're going on to a life of living in their mother's basement. Unfortunately, that's not true, or at least has not been true in the the past. So what we did is we tracked a set of 300 randomly selected former campus radicals, as identified by the organization Canary Mission. Um, They track and profile Mm -hmm. uh, campus radicals, and they've been doing it for a long time. So we we looked at the campus, uh, the Canary Mission alums, um, to see what occupations they're in now. 
And we found that the largest chunk of them, 38%, are in education. 28% in higher ed, 10% in K-12. This is more than twice as many as the 16% in advocacy. I was, I, was about to, I was about to say it's always been this bad because the guy who wrote the Port Huron statement became a state legislature in Cal- state legislator in California for decades, but that might Bill be Harris worse. Bill became a professor <laughs> or Angela Davis became a professor. So, so essentially what we're seeing is the long march through our institutions actually happen. So the former, cam- former campus radicals become... Uh, you know, professors themselves, they recruit new vulnerable people to become the next campus radicals, to become the next professors. And we're, we're on the second or third generation of this already. And this is part of how it's spreading culturally on campus. Again, I don't think they have the majority. I don't want to overstate this. Um, there's still a small group on campus, r- relatively speaking, but they are m- more numerous and more influential than ever because they're more menacing than ever. Um, and so we we have to stop this long march through our institution by defunding them so that they're that it should be more lucrative for them to have to go work for a 501c3 and actually raise their own money than to receive, you know, taxpayer money to do the same thing. That's essentially what they're doing. They're they've gone to campus instead of 501c3 advocacy organizations because it pays better, the job security is better, and you have a captive audience of students who are forced to listen to you and repeat it back, right? All right. Well, thanks again to Jay Green of the Heritage Foundation for joining us. We will include a link to his opinion piece in The Federalist with his colleague Mike Gonzalez in today's show notes. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you, and please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week. Thank you.